Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The idea was if we, if, if we don't have to look at human legs, and I'm trying to be the fastest woman to run on prosthetics, why aren't we looking at the fastest thing that runs on land? You know, so that was the cheetah idea, a very childlike way to attack the problem. But then using carbon fiber, which obviously is an energy storing material rather than the wood plastic compound, and just abandoning the need for a human aesthetic opened the possibilities for real improvement in design for that function, for the function of running. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Amy Mullins is a true polymath. Her passions and professional pursuits are as varied and boundless as the awards and groundbreaking strides she's achieved within her many chosen fields. She broke new ground in athletics as the first amputee in history to compete against able-bodied athletes in the NCAA's Division I track and field events. She went on to set records in the 100 and 200 meter races and the long jump. Her poise and athleticism led to a career in fashion as a runway model for Alexander McQueen and as a global ambassador for L'Oreal. She then added acting to her portfolio with roles in widely varied projects, ranging from artist Matthew Barney's Cremaster series to Netflix's Stranger Things. Through it all, Amy has continued to make sense of the many trails she's blazed in a series of influential TED Talks that have been viewed by millions and translated into 42 languages. It was her paradigm-shifting talk on the opportunity of adversity that offered a veritable proof of concept for the ideas I'm exploring in this season of Change Lab. Her powerful argument for the creative leaps that result only from the hurdles we face resonated deeply with the idea that the human imagination feeds on challenge and uncertainty, a familiar concept to regular listeners of this podcast. Amy contends that we meet and exceed our goals because of, not despite, each obstacle we encounter, an insight she's earned the hard way navigating the world as a double amputee. Her insistence that good enough isn't good enough has led to advances in prosthetic design that would never exist without her. In fact, Amy contends that disability itself is a misnomer, better attributed to a broken piece of machinery than a human being whose differences are the source of their strength. I think we all have much to learn from Amy's self-determination, curiosity, and wonder. Please enjoy my conversation with Amy Mullins. Hi, Amy. Hi. 
Thanks so much for being here and being part of Change Lab. I'm so thrilled that I get to talk to you. It's wonderful. Thank you, Lauren. This season of the podcast is really trying to explore the relationship between creativity and healing, kind of loosely defined. And of the many things that I learned from you, one is kind of keen focus on language and the importance of language. And I actually thought it would be really interesting for us to explore certain key ideas or define certain terms in the most precise way as we embarked into this conversation. And so I wanted to focus on three terms in which I've, you know, you've challenged our assumptions about them. One is disabled and the relationship of normal and disabled. A second one is adversity. And a third, just because I find it so compelling, is your exploration of the word naive as well. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do that, if you could explore with us some definitions around those terms, starting with the notion of disability or disabled and normal. Sure. Well, disabled means what it looks like. It's unable, less able, somehow not functioning in the in the normative way that something is expected to function. It's perfectly relevant when describing a piece of machinery, you know, the, the disabled car broken down on the side of the road. But I find it really problematic because we use it to describe humans. Mm. And truthfully, the, that word had never been, to my knowledge, used to describe me when I was growing up. It just wasn't in the lexicon of my household, of my friends. There were certainly, sure, you'd have, sometimes you'd have, you'd overhear a conversation with older people and they would use the word handicapped or something like that to try and describe the fact that I had prosthetic legs and used prosthetic legs to, to be mobile. But disabled obviously became the sort of word applied to me as I started to become in the public eye sort of in the mid nine, mid to late 90s. And it irked me, but what was more problematic was the fact that I couldn't encapsulate what I did in my different careers into one term, you know, that you could fit on a business card. So I, I didn't really focus on the word disabled until, I don't know, about 12 years ago when I wrote an op-ed piece for Wired magazine. And I dug my old thesaurus from college, actually really from high school, off the shelf for, for the writing of the article and then polished it, sent it into the editor and realized after that, you know, it was basically having a celebratory dinner, cracked open a bottle of wine and realized I'd never looked up the word disabled. And so I did. And the entry was at first amusing and very quickly turned shocking when I considered what if I had looked this up as an eight-year-old? If I had heard it used to describe me or, or a doctor was telling my parents that this was what I was. And some of the words are really shot, you know, senile and impotent and broken down and useless, maimed, wreck. And then the, the, at the very end was the antonyms, whole and wholesome wholesome, a judgment of one's character. And certainly there is, there's, if you, if you really look at sort of cinema history or even literature through the ages, people with disabilities are often represented as the villain. I'm thinking King Richard III mm -hmm. or Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. But think about early cinema where the 
the, the villain ties up the damsel in distress on the railroad tracks, you know, and he has a limp. It's been coded in our cultural consciousness for centuries. So I just posited to the medical profession, especially, how useful it is to casually use a word like that, which has such a heavy meaning in our society, to describe the medical prognosis of, a, of any human being, but especially a child, one who's still very much in formation. And I was surprised at the response I, I've gotten since then. It, it has resonated with people to think about some of these things that we just inherit from previous generations who maybe weren't as concerned with psychological impact or that kind of emotional growth that we we now, thanks to the kind of normalization, if you will, of, of psychotherapy, we're, we're all much more aware of the fragility of how we are with, with how people we're described. You know, as you're speaking, it reminds me, I several years ago did a project in the Bay Area, um, in Berkeley, actually, on the Ed Roberts campus. But I, I remember this was, oh, this is easily 20 years ago. That community really was insisting that the, the word disability be used because they were mm. reacting to the word handicap, which as I recall, and maybe you know this because I'm digging into the recesses of my memory here, but as I recall, handicap is an, an old image of actually holding out a, a hat and begging. Cap in hand. Right. And that the term comes exactly from that. Yeah. If I had been born a hundred years earlier and not abandoned, given over to nature or what have you, that would have been one of the only roads for income, you know, was, was, was that, was to beg. The next term really is adversity. And it gets to, you know, the central question that we're trying to address, but I've loved reading and thinking about the way you talk about adversity or challenge our assumptions about adversity. You know, you challenge the notion that it's it's not so much an obstacle to overcome, but something that we need to work with. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what that concept might mean. Well, again, adversity is something that comes up. A lot of these writings that I've done are, were born of a reaction I had to being interviewed by press, you know, as a 21-year-old, 20-year-old, all the way on up to today, where in the beginning, and it was a very lonely place. You know, I was the first person in the world on those cheetah legs, the right. carbon fiber sprinting ones that are like an upside down question mark. So obviously visually impactful in a way that prosthetics hadn't been before. And also clearly perplexing to a lot of people because the top half of me looked one way and then below the knees looked another way. And people intimated to me their confusion. I mean, to the point of saying things like, you know, you, you're really attractive. You don't look like you're disabled. And I thought that was so interesting. I said, well, that's personally, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't feel that I'm disabled. But it, what was revelatory about those exchanges was this idea that there was an us and them that I hadn't been privy to before. And the admission was, you don't look like one of them. You look like, you feel like one of us. And that's when I started really considering the fashion industry and how 
nearly every image in a, in a fashion magazine starting in the late 90s was being certainly, well, before that, airbrushed and then photoshopped. For most people who are now much more savvy about all of this, thanks to, I think, social media and all the filters that are at the tips of, you know, the fingertips of eight-year-olds. But that was, people weren't savvy to Photoshop. Uh, certainly, I'm thinking about people like my parents. They don't, they wouldn't know that an image had been so manipulated in a way. And we saw that. We saw it having a real impact on people's self-esteem with body image. And it occurred to me that so many of these people that were saying, you know, really intelligent people who've traveled around the world who are very curious, these are people that might have the Pirelli calendar on their garage wall, you know, with the supermodels of the moment on this swimsuit calendar and not realize how much besides the image manipulation, how much of those people's bodies have actually been manipulated and altered. And why is it that you amputate part of a nose and that's enhancement or you put a prosthetic in your breast cavity and that's augmentation. But if you, you know, amputate part of a limb and you put a prosthetic, it was automatically disability. And I'm using the word because it was laden with the connotation of being less than, mm-hmm. somehow incomplete. Mm-hmm. Whereas these these models were exalted as the, the creme de la creme of our aesthetic desire. And just engaging people in conversations around that and highlighting the use of, say, breast implants or nose, you know, uh, rhinoplasty and things like that, which have now become so common all of these body modifications, it got people to understand maybe how not so different it is to use a prosthetic leg or arm or, you know, if I'm looking at you wearing these great glasses, everyone, you can't see it, but Lauren's got really good specs on. (laughs) I'm coveting them. That's a prosthetic. And it's so common, whether whether you see it on someone's face with glasses or it's, you don't see it and they have contact lenses, or maybe they go another step further and they get LASIK surgery. And that's modifying the body. That's saying, that's rejecting the natural limit that nature puts on the body. And so that's what I was trying to do in my pursuit of more and stranger and different prosthetics. But back to your original question, sorry, my tangent about adversity was that it's, it, that's comes up in all these interviews. Like, how do you, how do you do it as if I had some kind of secret uh, to dealing with challenge and really sitting with that and be and, and being aware of my reactions to challenge, certainly not consistent. I have the Ah, hair pulling out moments like everyone. But as a general mindset, I, because I guess, and probably because I've lived with it my whole life. And, but the truth is so has everyone. Everyone has lived with adversity their whole life. Some of it's just more overt, but everyone certainly has. And it's, and everyone's challenges are relative to them. So even the kind of comparison idea of like, well, at least it's not that, I don't really find so helpful.
You know, it's interesting. What designers tell, tell me is they actually love constraint. Yeah. That once they can start in their process of designing, start building and understanding constraint, we tend to immediately in a kind of knee-jerk way think, oh, so suddenly something's limited. But in fact, the design sensibility says, once I understand the constraint, it opens up possibility. And I think that's, yes. it echoes very much of what you're talking about. Yeah. And how you're looking at adversity too, right? It was a simple mindset shift in the sense that, so the fact that I'm a bilateral amputee, right? Both limbs below the knee, that's rare. And when a prosthetist is there with a, a patient, or client, how are you going to look at it? Someone who needs their services to build a prosthetic limb, they model the prosthetic off of the uh, flesh and bone limb. So for for legs, your height is determined and the pronation of the feet and the alignment, they're just trying to match the other side, everything, the shape, the aesthetic. Well, for me, you know, I don't have the other side to match. And that was always a huge headache my whole mm. life. It caused a little bit of a princess in the pea dynamic because they were telling me, no, no, you're, you're even, your legs are the same height. But, you know, we all know that one leg is actually longer than the other. And I could feel the nuances only once I got up into the legs and I could walk, I could feel where one hip felt higher than the other. And also in my experience, they were all men my, my whole life. They always have been. And it was an important part of me finding my own voice as a woman to be able to speak up for myself and talk back to these people who sort of dismissed my actual lived experience in favor of kind of their historical data of how they do it. And so that's why I went looking elsewhere for people to build legs for me because I needed somebody who didn't have that baggage, the mental baggage of what a leg should be and what it should look like. And so, you know, I was still living with these wooden, like a, a wooden plastic compound, which actually the Eames has developed. That's, mm where prosthetics sort of from the 30s till the late 80s, early 90s, when the, the Eames were learning how to bend plywood because they were making prosthetics for veterans. So I, I was always so taken by kind of an interdisciplinary, like just going for people who had no idea, jewelry designers, fashion designers, glass blowers, sculptors, Hollywood prosthetic makeup artists, you know, when I looked at the Terminator walking in, and there's an articulated ankle and knee, and I think, wait, you, you built that for a set, but you, but we actually need that. There's people out there who really need, who need that to work. <laughs> and it was just, again, the mindset of somebody saying, the space between where your leg ends and the ground has infinite possibility. And I did eventually find that, but it was it was leaving the the traditional medical world to to find it. And now it's I, I find that people who enter the profession are so much more open to something a bit more maverick. It's a good transition. If I can ask, just because I know the listeners will love to hear this, if you could tell the story of the cheetah legs and the design maybe contextualize it that way as you just have the design challenge you faced, because I think it, I mean, it speaks volumes as to exactly what you're talking about here. Well, the very simple idea was if I don't have to have human legs and I'm trying to be the fastest woman on the planet with prosthetics, why are we looking at human legs? Why are we looking at the shape of human legs? You know, I had 
a wooden kind of shin and a rubberized foot with a bolt that went up through the heel you know, of the of the foot into the shin. So no matter how great your stride length, how good your form, it's a fixed 90 degree position of that ankle. So you're going to be striking with the heel every time. Now, if you watch a sprinter, they're on the balls of their feet, straight out of the blocks. So the idea was if I'm trying to be the fastest woman to run on prosthetics, why aren't we looking at the fastest thing that runs on land? You know, so that was the cheetah idea. Very, very childlike way to attack the problem. But then using carbon fiber, which obviously is an energy storing material rather than the, the wood plastic compound, and just abandoning the need for a human aesthetic opened the the possibilities for actual real improvement in, in design for that function, for the function of running, because they're not legs you can kind of hang out on. They do put your hamstrings and your gluteals into contraction and the question, the upside down question mark shape. Now granted they've softened them. They've softened the shape a lot in subsequent decades, but 25 years ago, I was really up on what the balls of my feet, even towards the toes. So it was meant for forward movement. But the leg itself, you know, rather than having this clumsy kind of wooden thing where you cluck clunk, cluck clunk, if you can, listeners, if you can imagine putting on ski boots and then trying to run, you know that feeling of the heel strike really impedes the fluidity of motion. And so by removing that, and and in, in our case, just ripping a spike plate off the bottom of a track shoe and bonding it directly onto the bottom of the prosthetic leg and screwing the spikes into that negated the need to even try and figure out how to tie a shoe onto that and where are we going to tie the laces up. We got this streamlined, incredible shape that mimicked as closely as we could at the time, the way a sprinter, a cat, obviously, and a sprinter run. So that made for a massive leap forward in the engineering of prosthetic legs. So relevant to design here again, let's talk about this word naivete. And it's just your insight and your your study of the etymology of it is really interesting. And I think it would be a nice way to get to my next question. How do you think about naivete? Well, there, it does, obviously it's a French term and I, forgive me, I can't remember, but I, I feel like it's from just born. I feel like that is the original French etymology is just born. The dictionary definitions are one thing, and then usage right. can be another. And I have found that people really are uncomfortable with if they were be, to be described in that way. It's it's done as a pejorative, like you're ignorant, and that isn't what it means. Childlike is how I I think of it, and I think of it in a, as a very very powerful asset that I really fight to hold on to as much as I can, because it, for me, is the bedrock of how I approach problem solving, is to not know, and to be fine with not knowing, and to kind of celebrate not knowing, and and try and get involved from that place, rather than a place of panic or even shame that you don't know. On their own. So the doors open, the kids descend on this table of legs, and they are poking and prodding, and they're wiggling toes, and they're trying to put their full weight on the sprinting leg to see what happens with that. And I said, kids, I decided I wanted to be able to jump over a house. If you could think of any animal 
any superhero, any cartoon character, anything you can dream up right now, what kind of legs would you build me? And immediately, a voice shouted, kangaroo, no, 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 it should be a frog. No, it should be go-go gadget. No, 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 it should be uh, the incredible. And then one eight-year-old said, hey, uh, why wouldn't you want to fly, too? And the whole room, including me, was like, yeah. <laughs> and just like that, I went from being a woman that these kids would have been trained to see as disabled to somebody who had potential that their bodies didn't have yet, somebody that might even be super-abled. It's interesting. When I talk to kids who are endlessly fascinated with, you know, they, when I'm wearing prosthetic legs that are very obvious, for instance, my friends that I'm staying with now here in California, she has a grandson who just turned six yesterday, and for the last year, he has... We don't even, there's no greetings. There's no exchange of hellos. It's just immediately, he goes straight to my ankle. He lifts up my pants like he wants to know what, what's going on, what I'm wearing, and how is this one have skin, and how is the other one have metal? And, and, and we, we go through it every time. Mm -hmm. And this last time I saw him was, was the first time he didn't ask. He just, he went right and he said, you know, we should get you some springy legs we should get you some springy legs. And I said, I would love that. I would love for you to draw them for me. I would love for you to help me design these. But this is a six-year-old who's already thinking about the possibilities of what it could be rather than sort of accepting what, what is as the end. And I, I find that so exciting. You know, it almost reminds me of like the old days of positivist psychology, which argued, don't assume your patient has a deficit that you're trying to make better. Assume that your patient is human and you're trying to allow them to create greater conditions for them to thrive, which is so much the message. But when it comes to design and possibility and what it means to actually cultivate a place of not knowing in order to enter, to have the courage to enter uncertainty and to begin to form and to make within that, that's what we do. That's what we try to teach. We try to give our students that very courage to go in and play in that world of the unknown because that's where they're going to discover it. Play. That's such another important word because kids do it. That's what we do. That's how, and by the way, that's also how we play is the, is the foundation of kind of all interaction of, of kids. When you are curious and engaged, it's fun. You know, this again, couching something as a problem is part of our problem. <laughs> right. And, and the language matters. The language yes. matters a lot, which is why I really wanted to get as precise as we could. And you're great about that. I think it opens up all kinds of insight in the way in which you're disciplined about that where you look at the language and how it's directing our attention, often away from possibility. That's true. That often, it's often away from possibility. If a couple people have reconsidered what has been a knee-jerk reflex in their naming of things, then that's great. It certainly wasn't something I realized until, again, I would spend a couple hours with a journalist and then read what they wrote after it was published. And, yeah. you know, inevitably there's some headline that they do to try and be tension grabby that is always disappointing. But also, I mean, even in one time there was a journalist for a really respected 
science journal. And she referred to my legs as fake, as fake legs. That was something as a kid that always bothered me because I was like, they're not fake. You can see them and touch them. They're real. It is a tool. And like a scissors is a tool to, that your, to do something your hands can't do. I find at least though that there is a shift happening for sure. I think at the end of the day, so many people, if they're not at parents themselves, they have young people in their life that they care about. And the idea that you might unwittingly be putting extra barriers in front of somebody's potential because you are very casual about your language. You know, it's not that I, I don't believe we should have language police. People being afraid to speak, mm. to talk, to ask questions is the antithesis of everything I care about. I have always aimed to generate conversation. So for me, I, I am totally against the attitude of you should just know, you should go do your homework and just know. I, I really invite questions. How do people know? How would someone know what my experience is like if they don't feel comfortable enough to talk to me about it? Yeah. That's my that's my view and it yeah. certainly has has brought wonderful conversations to me. You know, Amy, we talk at Art Center quite a lot. Designers talk about this, but we also try to help our students understand the significance of failure in what they do. Failure not as devastation, but as a really a part of the stepping stones toward discovery and what that might mean. Yeah. You have a story of after a habit of winning of failure in your life, I think might be interesting for our students to hear. Yeah. Know. What Lauren's talking about, dear listeners, is my college days, right? So I, I was running division one track at Georgetown, which was thrilling and terrifying in equal measure. And, you know, I had this extraordinary, uh, the privilege of one of the best track coaches who've ever, who's ever lived, Frank Gagliano. And you do a great it. accent of his too. So <laughs> right, yeah, I want to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my, his, he's Brooklyn, you know, Brooklyn through and through. But there I was learning how to run on these cheetah legs. And I was a, still a teenager. That was something I, I don't even think I understood about myself until much later, what psychologically I was going through. Because you know, I grew up in the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, which is only 90 some miles from New York City, but worlds away in so many ways. And my dad is an immigrant from Ireland. And, you know, both he and my mom were of the generation where whatever the doctor said was sort of God. And they were always mortified by my pushing back. And it's just, outright saying, I think you're wrong about this. That just wasn't in their muscle memory. And in fact, you know, they, when I grew up, they, they always made me wear these white thigh high kind of stockingettes. They were opaque to pull all the way up over. If it was summertime and I was wearing shorts all the way up over the knee as if, <laughs> As if that's really hiding anything convincingly, but you know, you know, this little child running around in shorts with white thigh highs, bizarre. However, it, it wasn't until I was fourteen when I came down. It was Easter Sunday, and I came down wearing a dress I had bought from my paper route money. It was the first thing I'd ever bought that wasn't on sale, 
as I really remember it, it was like $49.99 at the mall, which was a lot of money. And it was so cool. It was basically like an uh, Yves Saint Laurent safari dress knockoff, like the 70s. Like I had the pockets and the belt and and it hit at the knee. And I came down the stairs because we had to go to church. And my dad was sitting there on the couch with the newspaper in front of his face. And he sort of, I guess, peeked at the, over the top of the newspaper. And he said, that doesn't look right. You got to go up and change. And at first I was like, what? My, this is the nicest thing I own. This I look amazing in this dress. But I knew what he was actually getting at. It was the fact that, again, I had still had the kind of wooden legs. The, the wooden legs were held on by straps. So there were Velcro straps that were riveted on either side of the knee on the prosthetic. And then I would make an X shape across the patella around my lower, you know, my thigh there and crank it as tight as I could to make sure they were staying on. That happened over a very thick, very, very uncomfortable, itchy woolen sock. So this is what all I had known. But number one, the hemline didn't cover the rivets. It hit right at the knee. So when I was walking down the stairs, you could see the knee joint of the prosthetic. And for my dad, that's no, not, was not okay. It, and quote, didn't look right. And it was the first time I ever really openly defied him. He's a tough guy. He's a tough man. And I just refused to change because I was old enough to see what they were doing with the hiding of the prosthetics and realizing that it was really about them. You know, that was their hang up. And, and I also, you know, I have compassion for how hard it must have been for parents to deal with people staring at their child, you know, especially a proud man like my dad and he couldn't, he couldn't do anything about it. So I've tried to have, I try to hold that in my, in my heart when I remember, remember some of these things, but getting away from hiding my prosthetics was, was a journey for me. Hmm. And there was five years later on these legs that no one had ever seen before and talk about drawing attention to yourself. So what, you know, in my previous incarnation, I had these wooden legs with the feet. So with, when I'm wearing track pants or whatever, no one could really tell. I mean, in fact, that was the thing I used to pride myself on. People would say, gosh, you'd never tell. Whereas, you know, now I, I, would, I, know, I don't care if you can tell, but for my parents, that was sort of a metric and one that went unexamined by me until after I'd gone through this incredible experience of, by default, of wanting to be the fastest woman in the world on prosthetics and having to train with people who are inherently better than me and being able to join the Georgetown track team like this. I was faced with this kind of humiliation because the legs were absolutely the attention getter and people were talking about it. And there I was at the Big East Championship, which is a huge deal for our conference. It's obviously the championship and it was held at, at Penn in Philadelphia. And I was expected to qualify for the U.S. Olympic Paralympic trials at this meet. It also was the first really warm spring day of the season. And I was the guinea pig in these legs. So the way they were held on, dear listener, you remember I told you about the kind of carbon fiber shape and, and bonding the spike plate directly on the bottom of the, of the leg. So you have the carbon fiber socket, which is the, 
the mold taken of my residual limb and I would have a kind of silicon socket that I would put on and then the silicon socket fits inside the carbon fiber socket, give me a little bit of padding. And then there was a another, like a tubular piece of silicon around the socket of the prosthetic that would roll up over my thigh. And then there was a one-way vacuum pump valve in the back, lower back of the socket. So any air remaining in the socket, when I would step down, it would get forced out of the valve and not allowed back in and theoretically creating a suction socket. That was the idea. Well, we didn't know what, hap- that, what would happen when I started sweating so much inside a socket. Granted, those legs are woven carbon fiber. They're, they're black, so they really absorb the sun's rays. And I was basically cooking myself in there as I'm doing my warm-ups. And we get called to the starting line. And <laughs> meanwhile, I had been doing my, like I said, my drills. So the sweat was starting in the socket and it's moving up and up and up and up inside this silicon sleeve all the way up into my thigh. And the gun goes off. And I ran, did, <laughs> ran for the Olympic trials. And 80 meters into that 100 meter race, I felt I, on my right leg, I came out of it. The sweat had broken the seal. And I went down on the track hard and basically like scrambled on the ground to try to get to the finish line, stop the clock. And it was at that time, probably one of the most humiliating things that ever happened to me because, you know, my leg did not come fully, I didn't come fully out of it, but it felt like that. And the, the attention, the, the, the idea that 5,000 people and whoever else was watching on television would have seen me, I guess, at my most vulnerable was horrifying to me at the time. I have a, there's a totally different import on something like that now for me. But at the time, like I said, teenager and new to this, grew up in a household where it was all about obfuscation. And, you know, this is not the most, I still believe that it's not the most interesting thing about hopefully me or my life, but certainly notable. And here I was deliberately putting myself in a position where I couldn't hide in any way. And that set me, that was a huge milestone in the, the journey of being okay with failure. And to your point as a, as a very necessary step in the process but also re- realizing it and the holistic nature of it and how important it is actually to touch that vulnerability, touch that frailty, have compassion for it, realize how often our emotions are informing us to do something that maybe isn't the right path or the best the best path forward. It's definitely something I revisit a lot thinking about that that moment and especially how my coach got me through it. He was his basic answer was, so what? Because I did not want to run again. And he just refused. He wasn't having it. He said, you know, so what if your leg falls off? You pick it up, you put it on, you finish the, (laughs) 
goddamn race is what he said. And it was, it was exactly that. It was, that's how I got through it. Right. And it has a resonance. And I think, I think it's applicability to what our students go through in their way with different kinds of stakes, I think, but nonetheless, what they go through and how they learn to understand failure as, you know, again, not something that is devastating. Yeah. That thing of, of parameters, I am trying to <laughs> thinking about my brain and its neuroplasticity. I'm trying to reform my gut feeling about writing, which I've always really hated. And it is like squeezing blood from a stone for me. But the process I have that I'm currently using, which has is, sh- is shifting things for me, is exactly that. It's just a parameter of time, ten minute, a ten minute burst, you know. And I use a prompt. It's a dear friend of mine. If anyone's interested in writing, Allegra Houston, who edits lo- loads of books as well, but she's she's written a memoir and a novel. But she runs a group called Imaginative Storm, and basically, she gives you a writing prompt could be an image it could be a sound file they play the sound file for two minutes and for two minutes you just free associate you write down words that come to your mind either based on the image or just or not but whatever it does and then in this case it was about 15 people or so the other day on zoom and and everybody picks one word from their little sandbox of free associative words and then that list becomes a communal list. And then they set a, ba- a time for 10 minutes. And based on that communal list with, and also your own, just write whatever. And some people just literally join the words. They just make a something poetic. But that, the, the constraints on, here it is. It's, it's an image. It's two minutes. It's these words. It's 10 minutes. Has opened up the possibilities for me and where characters and things are coming out of me that I, people I didn't know before. It reminds me a lot about improvisation, how people talk about it. My background's in theater and how people talk about improvisation, right? You can't improvise out of nowhere. You, a prompt or a frame or a context or a melody for a Miles Davis in the music, what, what, whatever it is, that structure is necessary, but it's that space between and how you, you find and discover within that openness, within the context of that frame that becomes, you know, the driving force, which is a great way for me to ask you, you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time in, in your kind of athletic and sports life, because I think it's, it's, first of all, an incredibly compelling story, but also it has so much resonance, I think, for what, you know, what we're trying to get at, both in this podcast and the way we're educating our students. But I'm compelled to ask you about your thoughts about the relationship between your creative drive, which is clearly so present and so abundant, and your athletic drive. I don't know if you remember the, the movie Chariots of Fire. There's this Olympian who's a Christian and who runs for the glory of God, and there's the, this Olympian who's Jewish and who runs to fight prejudice. And there becomes this amazing parallel between their athleticism and, and their life and, and what, what drives them. And it seems to me that your creative drive is so powerful and so, so strong. And again, uh, listeners should know how many other wonderful creative things you've been involved in beyond source, but I'm interested in the relationship between the two of them. 
I think that sports is the lost art. Hmm. When you think about the, you know, the original Olympics in Greece, multi-week thing, people laid down their ivory nose, they stopped war and, and they, but, but it was actually like a huge holistic spa. They really, you know, they, their families came and, and there was poetry, plays, there were all of this expression of creativity. And I always felt like sports was an expression of that because Okay, think about acting, right? Your background's in theater. What has always been compelling to me about actors is that you're watching people go through very private things in public. Granted, someone else wrote it for them, but I mean, that, and that is the point. It's, it's this drama. But that is the most incredible thing from seeing a play or, or uh, I've film or a TV show that captures you is this a sense of catharsis. There is a transcendence of pain or fear or some of these darker emotions that we experience. The the athletic nature of going to the theater and being present, say with Shakespeare for three hours, it's athletic for the actors, but it's also athletic for the audience. It should be anyway. And I think that's what we still are moved by when we watch live sports because you're watching somebody be completely present. You cannot be waiting for a pass in basketball mm. and have your mind elsewhere. You're going to take it in the face, you know, or you're going to miss it. You're going to let your team down. It's incredible to watch. We watch somebody facing very private things, doubt, insecurity, possible humiliation, any of these things, fear, we watch them facing it in front of our eyes. And I think our humanity recognizes the humanity in another person that way. It is this energetic exchange. I feel that when I'm on stage, that's the most thrilling thing for me is that I'm in this moment with that person there, with you in front of me, with that person back there. And it's moment to moment. And so much in our lives have taken us away from the present moment. And how compelling that is. I think that in today's modern society, one of the only places we get to really feel that anymore is watching sports because of that moment to moment quality. It's lovely, you know, and it's improvisational too, especially in team sports. I mean, improvisation defined as, you know, the thing made and the process of making it are one of the same, right there aligned. And how much, you know, pertinent to what we were just saying a few minutes ago, you know, in team sports, you have a structure, you have a frame, right? But if you're not responsive to the moment and to exactly what it demands at the time and be able to improvise and be, you know, quick to respond in that kind of way, then it's just mechanical, right? And the human element comes through so beautifully in that creativity that allows for you to be responsive to what the demands are and what the particular situation of the moment requires. Yeah. Here's a question I don't know if you'll be able to answer or not, but where does this spirit of yours come from? This life-clinging, beautiful desire to see possibility and reach and create. And what is that? I mean, you just... Know it from the second you see you and hear you and read you. I do. What? What is it? Where does it come from? I was born with it. It's curiosity. I've always been 
curious and I'm fascinated by most things and most people. There isn't a human being I've ever met who isn't actually fascinating, no matter how other people might make them feel that they're they're not. If you just really try and see them and if you ask questions and ask for them to have a conversation with you, it's just whole worlds. I just feel like I don't have enough time for how much stuff I'm actually fascinated by and interested in. But it's always been a a mission of mine to try and notice if I start to feel like I'm calcifying. I don't want to become someone who knows what they like and likes what they know. I try to keep a a big space open in my life for uh, the unknown, however scary it might actually be to me. And it is oftentimes. And I think when presented with the options, hope or despair, why not choose hope? (laughs) If it doesn't work out, then it didn't work out. But at least give yourself the the fun part of the roller coaster ride before it doesn't work out. You know, give yourself hope and anticipation and expectation and joy. Otherwise, what else you got on a Tuesday? Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. You're so welcome. I really appreciate the so nice to to talk about these things. I haven't talked about it in a while. Definitely not since pandemic. So I I feel we are reawakened. Thank you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, Share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Change Lab. Thank you.